Chapter Thirty Two of Way of the Lawless by Max Brand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The mayor herself was in far from safe condition, and if the marshal had roused himself from his grief and hurried up the slope on foot, he would have found the fugitive out of the saddle and walking by the side of the played-out Sally, forcing her with slaps on the hip to keep in motion. She went on stumbling, her head down, and the sound of her breathing was a horrible thing to hear. But she must be kept in motion, for if she stopped in this condition, Sally would never run again. Andrew forced her relentlessly on. At length, her head came up a little, and her breathing was easier and easier. Before dark that night, he came on a deserted shanty, and there he took Sally under the shelter and tearing up the floor, he built a fire which dried them both. The following day he walked again, with Sally following like a dog at his heels. One day later he was in the saddle again, and Sally was herself once more. Give her one feed of grain, and she would have run again that famous race from beginning to end. But Andrew, stealing out of the Royden Mountains into the lower ground, had no thought of another race. He was among a district of many houses, many men, and for the final stage of his journey he waited until after dusk had come and then saddled Sally and cantered into the valley. It was late on the fourth night after he left Los Toros that Andrew came again to the house of John Merchant and left Sally in the very place among the trees where the Pinto had stood before. There was no danger of discovery on his approach, for it was a wild night of wind and rain. The drizzling mists of the last three days had turned into a steady downpour, and rivers of water had been running from his slicker on the way to the ranch house. Now he put the slicker behind the saddle, and from the shelter of the trees surveyed the house. It was bursting with music and light. Sometimes the front door was opened, and voices stole out to him. Sometimes, even through the closed door, he heard the ghostly tinkling of some girl's laughter. And that was to Andrew the most melancholy sound in the world. The rain, trickling even through the foliage of the evergreen, decided him to act at once. It might be that all the noise and light were, after all, an advantage to him, and running close to the ground, he skulked across the dangerous open stretch and came into the safe shadow of the wall of the house. Once there, it was easy to go up to the roof by one of the rain pipes, the same low roof from which he had escaped on the time of his last visit. On the roof, the rush and drumming of the rain quite covered any sound he made, but he was drenched before he reached the window of Anne's room. Could he be sure that on her second visit she would have the same room? He settled that by a single glance. The curtain was not drawn, and a lamp turned low burned on the table beside the bed. The room was quite empty. The window was fastened, but he worked back the fastening iron with the blade of his knife and raised himself into the room. He closed the window behind him. At once the noise of rain and the shouting of the wind faded off into a distance, and the voice of the house 
came more clearly to him. But he dared not stay to listen, for the water was dripping around him. He must move before a large dark spot showed on the carpet, and he saw, moreover, exactly where he could best hide. There was a heavily curtained alcove at one end of the room, and behind this shelter he hid himself. And here he waited. How would she come? Would there be someone with her? Would she come laughing with all the triumph of the dance bright in her face? Vaguely he heard the shrill droning of the violins die away beneath him, and the slipping of many dancing feet on the smooth floor fell to a whisper and then ceased. Voices sounded in the hall, but he gave no heed to the meaning of all this. Not even the squawking of horns as automobiles drove away conveyed any thought to him. He wished that this moment could be suspended to an eternity. Parties of people were going down the hall. He heard soft flights of laughter and many young voices. People were calling gaily to one another, and then, by an inner sense rather than by a sound, he knew that the door was opened into the room. He leaned and looked, and he saw Anne Withrow close the door behind her and leaned against it in the joy of her triumph that evening. No, her head was fallen, and he saw the gleam of her hand at her breast. He could not see her face clearly, but the bent head spoke eloquently of defeat. She came forward at length. Thinking of her as the reigning power in that dance, and all the merriment below him, Andrew had been imagining her tall, strong, with compelling eyes commanding admiration. He found all at once that she was small, very small, and her hair was not that keen fire which he had pictured. It was simply a coppery glow, marvelously delicate, molding her face. She went to a great full-length mirror. She raised her head for one instant to look at her image, and then she bowed her head again and placed her hand against the edge of the mirror for support. Little by little, through the half-light, he was making her out, and now the curve of this arm, from wrist to shoulder, went through Andrew like a phrase of music. He stepped out from behind the curtain, and at the sound of the cloth swishing back into place, she whirled on him. She was speechless. Her raised hand did not fall. It was as if she were frozen where she stood. "'I shall leave you at once,' said Andrew quietly. If you are frightened, you have only to tell me. He had come closer. Now he was astonished to see her turn swiftly toward the door and touch his arm with her hand. Hush, she said, hush. They may hear you. She glided to the door into the hall and turned the lock softly and came to him again. It made Andrew weak to see her so close, and he searched her face with a hungry, and jealous fear, lest she should be different from his dream of her. You are the same, he said with a sigh of relief, and you are not afraid of me. Hush, hush, she repeated. Afraid of you? Don't you see that I'm happy, happy, happy to see you again? She drew him forward a little, and her hand touched his as she did so. She turned up the lamp and a flood of strong yellow light went over the room. 
But you have changed, said Anne Withrow, with a little cry. Oh, you have changed. They've been hounding you, the cowards. Does it make no difference to you that I have killed a man? Ah, it was that brother to the dozier man. But I've learned about him. He was a bloodhound like his brother, but treacherous. Besides, it was in fair fight. Fair fight? It was one against six. Don't, said Andrew, breathing hard. Don't say that. You make me feel that it's almost right to have done what I've done. But besides him, all the rest, do they make no difference? All of what? People say things about me. They even print them, he winced as he spoke. But she was fierce again. Her passion made her tremble. When I think of it, she murmured, when I think of it, the rotten injustice makes me want to choke them all. Why, today I heard, I can't repeat it. It makes me sick, sick. Why, they've hounded you and bullied you until they've made you think you are bad, Andrew. They even made you a little bit proud of the hard things people say about you. Isn't that true? Was it any wonder that Andrew could not answer? He felt all at once so supple that he was hot tallow, which those small fingers would mold and bend to suit themselves. Sit down here, she commanded. Meekly he obeyed. He sat on the edge of his chair, with his hat held with both hands, and his eyes widened as he stared at her, like a person coming out of a great darkness into a great light. And tears came into the eyes of the girl. You're as thin as a starved wolf, she said, and closed her eyes and shuddered. And all the time I've been thinking of you as you were when I saw you here before. The same clear, steady eyes and the same direct smile. But they've made you older. They've burned the boy out of you with pain. And I've been thinking about you just cantering through wild, gay adventures. Are you ill now? He leaned back in the chair and gathered his hat close to his breast, crushing it. I'm not ill, said Andrew. His voice was hoarse and thick. I'm just listening to you. Go on and talk. About you? asked the girl. I don't hear your words hardly. I just hear the sounds you make. He leaned forward again and cast out his arm so that the palm of his hand was turned up beneath her eyes. She could see the long, lean fingers. It suddenly came home to her that every strong man in the mountain desert was in deadly terror of that hand. Anne Withrow was shaken for the first time. Listen to me, he was saying in that tense whisper, which was oddly like the tremor of his hand. I've been hungry for that voice all these weeks and months. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, said the girl, very grave. I'm going to break up this cowardly conspiracy against you. I've written to my father to get the finest lawyer in the land and send him out here to make you legal again. He began to smile and shook his head. It's no use, he said. Perhaps your lawyer could help me on account of Bill's death, but he couldn't help me from Hal. Are you? Do you mean you're going to fight the other man too? He killed his horse chasing me down, said Andrew. I couldn't stop to fight him because I was coming down here to see you. But when I go away, I've got to find him 
and give him a chance back at me. It's only fair. Because he killed a horse trying to get you, you're going to give him a chance to shoot you? Her voice had become shrill. She lowered it instinctively toward the end and cast a glance of apprehension toward the door. You are quite mad, said the girl. You don't understand, said Andrew. His horse was Gray Peter the Stallion, and I would rather have killed a man than have seen Gray Peter die. Hal had Peter's head in his arms, he added softly, and he'll never give up the trail until he's had it out with me. He wouldn't be half a man if he let things drop now. So you have to fight Hal Dozier? Yes. But when that's done? When that's done, one of us will be dead. If it's me, of course, there's no use worrying. If it's Hal, of course, I'm done in the eyes of the law. Two murders. His eyes glinted and his fingers quivered. It sent a cold thrill through the girl. But they say he's a terrible man, Andrew. You wouldn't let him catch you. I won't stand and wait for him, said Andrew gravely. But if we fight, I think I'll kill him. What makes you think that? She was more curious than shocked. It's just sort of a feeling that you get when you look at a man. Either you're his master or you aren't. You see it in a flash. Have you ever seen your master? asked the girl slowly. I'll want to die when I see that, he said simply. Suddenly she clenched her hands and sat up straight. It's got to be stopped, she said hotly. It's all nonsense, and I'm going to see that you're both stopped. Four days ago, he said, you could have taken me in the hollow of your hand. I would have come to you and gone from you at a nod. That time is about to end. He paused a little and looked at her in such a manner that she was frightened, but it was a pleasant fear. It made her interlace her fingers with nervous anxiety, but it set a fire in her eyes. That time is ending, said Andrew. You are about to be married. And after that, you will never look at me again? Never think of me again? I hope not, he answered. I strongly hope not. But why? Is marriage a blot or a stain? It's a barrier, he answered. Even to thoughts? Even to friendship? Yes. A very strange thing happened in the excited mind of Anne Withrow. It seemed to her that Charles Merchant sat, a filmy ghost, beside this tattered fugitive. He was speaking the same words that Andrew spoke, but his voice and his manner were to Andrew Lanning what moonshine is to sunlight. She had been thinking of Charles Merchant as a social asset. She began to think of him now as a possessing force, Anne Withero possessed by Charles Merchant. What you have told me, she said, means more than you may think to me. Have you come all this distance to tell me? All this distance to talk, he said. He seemed to sit back and wonder. Have I traveled four days, he went on. Has Gray Peter died, and have I been under Hal Dozier's rifle only to speak to you? He suddenly recalled himself. No, no, I have come to give you a wedding present. He watched her color change. Are you angry? Is it wrong to give you a present? No, she answered, 
in a singular, stifled voice. It is this watch. It was a large gold watch and a chain of very old make that he put into her hand. It is for your son, said Andrew. She stood up. He rose instinctively. When I look at it, I am to remember that you are forgetting me? A little hush fell upon them. Are you laughing at me, Anne? He had never called her by name before, and yet it came naturally upon his lips. She stood indeed, with the same smile upon her lips, but her eyes were fixed and looked straight past him, and presently he saw a tear pass slowly down her face. Her hand remained without moving, with the watch in it, exactly as he had placed it there. She had not stirred when he slipped without a noise through the window and was instantly swallowed into the rushing of the wind and rain. End of chapter 32